This is The Great Composers, an intimate look at some of history's most brilliant musical minds from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. listening to the Credo section of Mozart's Coronation Mass, written upon his return to Salzburg, Austria, at the age of 23. But coming home was the last thing that Mozart wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, he wanted to be in a city with a great orchestra and an active musical scene so that he could follow his muse. Right. Right, in several different genres. It would have been a dream. But as it turned out, if he found the right place, like Mannheim, Germany, there was no vacancy. But if he found a job like playing organ in France, it wasn't composing. It wasn't what he really wanted to do. Well, besides, he hated Paris and the Parisians. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And so as it turned out, after several months looking for a job in Mannheim, Germany and Paris, France, and then his mother dying while Mm. he was in, in Paris, Mozart pretty much limped back home to Salzburg. And he didn't publish anything significant for nearly six months. But then he licks his wounds and writes this incredible piece. Coronation Mass. It's gorgeous. The glorious credo from Mozart's coronation mass, his comeback piece in some ways. I'm Carla Walker, along with conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, and you're listening to Chapter 3 of CPR's Great Composer series on Mozart. And here's where we are in Mozart's life. So Mozart has traveled the world and dazzled the who's who of Europe as a child keyboard prodigy. But now he's 20 and he wants to be known as a composer. And like a lot of young men in their 20s, he'd like to meet a girl and maybe fall in love and maybe get married. Right, but Papa Mozart, Leopold, he's got a plan and he's sticking to it. The plan is that Wolfgang is supposed to get a job outside Salzburg so the entire family can follow him and leave this sleepy burg. The problem is that that plan demands that Mozart remain a bachelor, at least for the time being. So here is this young man in his early 20s under the thumb of his father. Right. And now that he's back in Salzburg, he has a new boss. <laughs> and is he under the thumb of his new boss as well? The dreaded Archbishop Colorado, who just <laughs> thinks the entire Mozart family is just too big for their britches, so presumptuous. And the worst one of all is that youngest one, that brat Wolfgang. (laughs) Who does he think he is? So Colorado's intent on teaching Wolfgang his place. So here you've got both Colorado 
and his father, each in his own way, trying to harness Wolfgang's gifts to their own means. But if you see this from Wolfgang's standpoint, here you've got this genius walking the earth who simply wants to become a man. He simply wants to become who he was meant to be. But he felt like he was being stymied at every turn. To set the scene, Mozart is back in Salzburg, 23 years old, and now working for the archbishop, mainly writing serenades and masses. Which is not what he wants to be doing. His real love is opera, and he's trying to get out of Salzburg. So it was great news when he got a commission to write an opera for Munich, which became Idomeneo. Torna la pace al core from Act Three of Mozart's opera Idomeneo, an opera that he wrote in a blast of creativity in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, written and rewritten because the lead was a tenor by the name of Anton Roth, who at this point was advanced in years and he didn't have quite the range or the power that he once did, but he was a dear friend of the Mozart family. He was actually there three years earlier when Mozart was going through that difficult time in France when his mother passed Mm -hmm. away. And Mozart wrote a song for him at the time and said, I like a song to be fitted to the singer like a well-made garment. And this aria is very similar to that song. Mozart's taking the greatest care to hide the limitations of Raff's voice while magnifying the things that he does well, the beauty of his sound. And so in doing so, he creates something perfectly suited to Raff's voice and just makes him sound like a million bucks. And Mozart does this for a number of the singers in the opera. Yeah, he. this becomes a trademark for him in the future, but Idomeneo is the opera where he really starts this practice of really tailoring arias to the individual singers. We're listening to the overture to Mozart's opera Idomeneo. It had been over four years since Mozart had written his last complete opera, literally as a teenager. This opera, Idomeneo, was a big step forward in his development, and it was a huge success in Munich. But that didn't stop his father from meddling. (laughs) Oh my, Leopold is full of advice for his son, both on personal matters and musical composition. It's like he can't help himself. So in his own words, he says, I advise you when composing to consider not only the musical, but also the unmusical public. You must remember that for every 10 real connoisseurs, there are a hundred ignoramuses. So do not neglect the so-called popular style, which tickles long ears. 
long, long ears. ears. Yeah. What does that mean? That's right. He's calling the listeners jackasses. And Scott, the letters between father and son, Mozart's in Munich, writing his opera, performing it. Papa Mozart, Leopold, is back in Salzburg. And and we're so lucky to have these letters back and forth between father and son because they they show this changing relationship, the beginning of struggle between father and son. Mozart basically dismisses his father's compositional advice, which is one thing. Not only that, but he starts to reject his father's personal advice and criticisms. He even throws a little bit of a guilt trip back to his dad, which is unheard of until this letter. He says, I beg you, don't send me such sad letters anymore. I know it, and by God, I feel it. How much you deserve some hours of peace. But am I the problem? And you know, dearest father, that I am remaining in Salzburg only for your sake. For God knows if I had to worry only about myself, I would have wiped my behind with the most recent contract they gave me. So what he's saying is, I'm there for you, Dad. I'm working in Salzburg for this. Only because of you. And if it were just for me, I would have been gone long ago. So gone is that submissive tone that Mozart used to take with his father. But if his father thought these words were disobedient, it was just a prelude of what was to come. Now, Mozart has just had a huge success in Munich with his opera Idomeneo, which was a much needed opportunity in the Mozart family's hopes of getting out of Salzburg. But an even greater opportunity presents itself in the capital, Vienna. And it's a great example of how Mozart learns to work the system for his own benefit. So now Joseph II is about to become emperor. This is a big deal, huge coronation. Everybody who's anybody wants to be there. So of course, Archbishop Colorado heads off to Vienna and he takes a rather impressive entourage with him. And in that entourage is included our star, the young Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And Colorado took Mozart to show him off, basically. Absolutely. The irony here is that Colorado still needs to keep him in check. And so he won't allow him to perform on his own. Now, Mozart, has, since he's under contract with Colorado, he's essentially his, his servant. So Colorado could decide whether or not to allow Mozart to accept invitations to perform on his own. On one occasion, Mozart missed the opportunity to perform for the emperor himself, mm. an event in which he would have made half of his yearly salary in Salzburg in one night. Because Colorado wouldn't let him do it? Because he wouldn't let him do it. As he put it to his father, just think what I could earn if I were able to give a concert for my own benefit now that the public knows me. But that arch booby of ours won't allow it. <laughs> he called him arch booby. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they had that term back then, right? In response to this, Mozart is given an assignment by the archbishop. Write me a serenade. When my guests show up, we'll play your music in the background. But Mozart uses this opportunity to write a piece of unexpected beauty. It's a piece that's come to be known as the Grand Partita. When I think of this piece, I almost, I'm reminded of the phrase, sometimes a flower is most beautiful when it grows among the rocks. Here, in the humble form of a serenade, Mozart is writing what he truly loves, opera. 
simple arpeggio sets it up, then pulsing chords. The listeners had to think, what's this? Take pause and listen for a moment, and then out of nowhere, a suspended note in the oboe. Hands off to the clarinet. Then falls and hands off to the basset horn. Reaches down, reaches back up, and then to the bottom. What genius to respond in such a subtle, beautiful way. The piece is absolute, exquisite genius. Movement to the Serenade Number no. Ten Grand Partita by Mozart, a piece that he wrote on assignment yeah. from his employer, the Archbishop Colorado, at a time when serenades were supposed to be background music. People talked over them. Yeah, very low expectations. Just walk in music, make Colorado look good, and get out. So Mozart wins the battle of the lowly assignment by writing a piece that was absolutely incredible. And the effect it had on the audience was exactly what Mozart intended. One listener said its effect was grand and sublime. So here's this simple background music that captures everyone's attention. So Mozart wins this battle. Battle number two is just around the corner. Mozart gets an invitation to participate in a benefit concert for the Widows of Musicians. Now, it would be extremely bad form to decline this invitation. You're not going to make money on it, but you're going to get great publicity and you're going to have a huge audience and the money's going to benefit the people who need it the most, the widows of deceased musicians. Mozart, of course, thinks, well, of course, Colorado will allow me to do this, but Colorado declines that. So, so Mozart's a- thinking... Everyone's going to think I'm a schmuck because I can't be there. How could you? So what does Mozart do? He starts to, I'm sorry, I can't participate. My boss won't let me. (gasps) What? And the other noblemen who are in Vienna shame Colorado into allowing Mozart to participate. He wins battle too. (laughs) Oh my goodness, did he win. And, you know, Colorado's really got mud in his face. Now, Now people realize you really are trying to suppress your employee this young man who has so much to give and you're trying to keep it for you how dare you well there was more to this concert that oh, would benefit mozart absolutely it's got he told his father the orchestra was magnificent we had 40 violins 10 basses 
The woodwinds were doubled. It was the largest orchestra that he had ever heard play his music up to this point in the largest setting for the largest audience of the most important people, rulers throughout Europe. It was a huge success. If you think that Mozart's music is only appropriately performed by small chamber orchestras, this is one occasion he got to hear his music played by a large orchestra, and he loved it. He said the performance was magnifique, and it might have sounded something like this. Opening movement to Mozart Symphony Number no. 34 on our Great Composer series, focusing on Mozart in Chapter 3 in Mozart's Life. I'm host Carla Walker, along with conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill in the CPR Performance Studio. Mozart is in Vienna for the coronation of the new emperor. He's with his boss, the Archbishop Colorado of Salzburg. And while he's there, his star is beginning to rise. And it doesn't go unnoticed by Colorado because he actually sends his assistant, Count Arco, to try to discourage Mozart, temper his expectations. So he actually said to him, you allow yourself to be far too easily dazzled in Vienna. At first, it is true, you are overwhelmed with praises and make a great deal of money into the bargain. But how long does that last? After a few months, the Viennese want something new. So condescending. Right. They don't want you. In other words, they couldn't possibly want right. you. But Mozart's convinced that only applies to the theater. He calls Vienna the land of the clavier, the land of the keyboard. And he's convinced that his particular field of playing piano concerts for small audiences around the city is far too popular for him to not make enough money to live. And he gets this crazy notion. He's convinced he can make it on his own. Which had never been done before as a composer. Yeah, inconceivable at the time. Not to work for an employer who could actually pay the musicians to perform your music? How are you going to do it without them? Mozart, I mean, despite what's going on around him, his employer trying to push him back into the box at every turn and every corner, Mozart is dreaming big. Absolutely. But it makes me wonder about his father. I mean, his father probably thought this was some harebrained idea of his sons. Yeah, and it's really sad because Colorado was really abusive in his treatment of Mozart. And unfortunately, Leopold starts to take Colorado's side in the argument against his own son and even hurls some pretty outrageous insults at his son that are evident in Mozart's letters to his father where he says, have some faith in me. I'm not a fool anymore and that I should be a godless, ungrateful son. So Scott, I think it's interesting in this letter, he says, I'm not a fool anymore. anymore. Right. So Mozart had always given into his father's criticisms like being foolish. But this time he sticks to his guns and he tries to convince his dad, I'm not a fool anymore. This is different. If you'll just give me a chance. He realizes Vienna is the land of the keyboard and I am Europe's greatest keyboardist. I'm the right guy in the right place at the right time. I've got to follow this opportunity. 
But Scott, he is under contract. He is an employee of the Archbishop Colorado in Salzburg, not in Vienna. And he does whatever it takes to get out of that contract to the point that he frustrated both his father and Colorado so much that when Colorado eventually did release him from his contract, he had Count Arco walk him to the door. But before he could leave, Count Arco actually kicked him in the rear end. This has to be the line in the sand for Mozart. This has to be the last straw. Yeah, just imagine how you would react if your boss insulted you in front of people you respected yeah. and called you belittling names like knave, scoundrel, and rascal. Your father called you a godless, ungrateful fool, mm-hmm. and your manager kicked you in the rear end. It put him over the edge, and he decided, I'm not going back. But what if he fails? It would have been catastrophe, right? He can't go back. Right. But he realizes this is the moment. And he decides, I'm going to risk it all to become the composer I know I can be, not a monkey for somebody else. His reward is that he's now free, making Mozart arguably the first freelance composer in history. That is the overture to Mozart's opera, The Abduction from the Seraglio, which was an opera that Mozart wrote in German. Tell me the significance of that. Most operas at this time were written in Italian, partially because they thought the language sounded more singable, but the backstory to this was Italian was spoken in the courts, so all the aristocrats would understand these operas that were in Italian. But the average person living in Vienna wouldn't understand the story. So Mozart is consciously making a decision to say, you know what, I'm willing to please the aristocrats a little bit less, maybe get fewer commissions, but I want to write for the people. I want them to understand. So here's this kid who, from the get-go, was put on this path to work for the aristocracy, and out of the gate, he rejects it. He says, I want to be the people's composer. In a lot of ways, he's flowering into what he always wanted to be. Right. All these years, he's had his father who had this grand plan of where he was supposed to work and what he was supposed to do and that he wasn't supposed to get married. And then he's working for Colorado who had all these limitations on what he could write and what he couldn't write. And now that he's on his own, it's like he's a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. And the first thing that he does... He got married. He got married. married. (laughs) The irony here is Leopold was still doing everything he could to try to prevent it. He actually tried to have Constanza's mother and her guardian thrown in jail. Now, Constanza was the bride. Constanza is his new love, ironically, the younger sister of the same singer that he met back in Mannheim. Oh, family. So still in the family. (laughs) And Leopold, besides trying to throw her mother and her guardian in jail, he also let Wolfgang, no, if you marry her, you're on your own. Basically, he was disinheriting him. The irony here is that Leopold himself was disinherited by his parents for marrying Maria Anna. And now he's doing the same thing to his son. Regardless, Wolfgang says, nope, I'm going to be my own person. And they were married August 4th, 1782. 
What's so hard to see in the story is that as Mozart is blossoming, it's just bringing out the worst in his dad, and their relationship keeps deteriorating. Couldn't let go, right? No, he just couldn't. But despite all that, Mozart wants to patch things up. So he goes to Salzburg with his new bride and professional soprano Constanza, and he writes a mass to communicate to his father. Kyrie begins dark and stormy, even turbulent, thick with all these complex lines that weave in and out of each other. It's music that's meant to convey conflict, struggle. But when the solo soprano, in this case, Constanza enters, the music turns comforting. Constanza's line, rising in hope and beauty, The message Wolfgang wants to portray is clear. In a world of darkness, confusion, and difficulty, Constanza provides a ray of hope and order. This is Wolfgang speaking directly to his father in the language that they knew best, the music. Not necessarily the words, not necessarily the context, but the musical content conveys. Constanza is saving me. She's not dragging me into greater chaos. She provides hope and order. Well, it didn't work. Leopold was not won over. While they're there, Constanza got to see all the riches that Wolfgang had won on his trips, all these expensive snuff boxes, sabers, medals, coins. Right, and, they must have had a huge oh, chest, chest full, full of them. stuff, yeah. And she thought, these are wonderful. She actually asked Leopold, could I take one or two back to Vienna with us just as mementos? They're rightly Mozart's. You and I would think so, but that's not how <laughs> Leopold saw it. He still is, is holding on to this view, hey, Our family sacrificed for Wolfgang when he was young, and there's a debt that needs to be repaid, and this is the debt. I warned Wolfgang when he decided to marry you that if he married you, he would be on his own, and I'm sticking to it. So what did he give her? Absolutely nothing. He, the, this really does just bring out the worst in him. He is a mean old Grinch. At this point, yeah. The relationship between Leopold and Wolfgang when he was young was very close, very endearing. But as soon as Wolfgang starts to pull away and be his own person, it really does bring out the worst in Leopold. So Wolfgang and his new bride, Costanza, they had gone back to Salzburg with high hopes of patching things up with dad, Leopold. Didn't work. They head back to Vienna. 
In the next few months and years, Mozart writes a flurry of piano concertos that has never been equaled, 15 piano concertos in five years. I mean, what a happy coincidence that the development of the piano coincided with Mozart's time in Vienna. Keyboards before this point were either harpsichords or early pianos that just weren't loud enough to play over an entire orchestra. But by now, the piano has developed into something that Mozart can make use of, and he uses this to create essentially a new genre. Basically, the piano concerto as we know it today, all the assumptions that we make about what a piano concerto is are established by Mozart at this time. Yes, there were piano concertos written before Mozart. I was going to say, Haydn wrote piano concertos. But how many of them are performed today? Yeah, not very many. Right, because our assumption of what a piano concerto should be is what Mozart created at this time. You have to imagine, if you were alive in Vienna at this time, no wonder everyone was so excited about Mozart. They literally got to witness the birth of a genre that has lasted to today. These concertos sometimes use the piano well above the orchestra, sometimes it's actually part of the texture of the orchestra, and then sometimes it grows out of it. And one of the perfect examples of that is one of my favorites, and surely one of his absolute greatest, and that is the piano concerto number 20 in D minor. This is Mozart in Vienna, his dream come true, the path that he imagined that no one else had imagined before, and he is on top of the world. The success that he was meeting with was inconceivable before he came around. This idea of I'm gonna play for the people and I'm gonna make a living from it, it's impossible for us to understand just how inconceivable that was before Mozart. But those warnings about the fickle taste of the Viennese, even in Mozart's special field of the piano, would eventually prove to be correct. Not yet, but even Mozart's popularity at the piano won't last for long. And we'll explore that next time on our Great Composers podcast. Head to CPR.org to find a Spotify playlist with the music in this episode and a timeline of Mozart's life. The great composers wrote some of the most powerful music ever. They were geniuses, but they were also humans with stories of struggle, heartache, and triumph. This podcast is about understanding their point of view to connect you more deeply with their incredible music. Each episode features stories, music, and insights illustrated on the piano in the CPR Performance Studio. And if you like this podcast, explore other podcasts from CPR Classical, the Beethoven 9 at 9, a look at Beethoven's life through his nine symphonies, and Centennial Sounds, featuring Colorado performances of music by 21st century composers. Find these at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Great Composers was conceived and written by Scott O'Neill with assistance from me, Carla Walker. It was produced by John Pino and Martin Skavish with help from Richard Ray. Editing consultant, Cindy Carpian. Brad Turner is our digital editor with help from Leslie Smale. The executive producer is Monica Vischer. And we're your hosts, Carla Walker. And I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening.